I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast. A podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. In this episode, the life of a foreign correspondent is one of the world's most glamorous jobs. Darren Hinch did it for 10 years. He chased down great train robber Ronnie Biggs in Brazil and covered the assassinations of Robert F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. And that is just the beginning. Mr Hinch, welcome to the podcast yet again. Today I'm so thrilled to talk about this because being a foreign correspondent is one of the great jobs in the world, ever. Uh, Being in the Senate was probably one of my greatest experiences, but being a foreign correspondent is, is a gem. Well, I can imagine. It's something I was not able to do myself because uh, I never got a job and I had a family and things. Cause it's not really a job for someone with a family, I no. wouldn't have thought. Now, what years were you a foreign correspondent? I um, Funny you mentioned family because if Lana, my first wife, if she and I had had kids, we probably wouldn't have gone overseas. It was just probably too hard. But we didn't, and uh, well, we, we, we both went overseas as, as single people and then came back to Australia and got married. Um, I was a foreign correspondent from 1966, late 65, 66, until 1976. So I had 11 years in New York. I, I First of all, I mean, I can't believe it now looking back, um, I was a bureau chief for United Press International in Toronto, and I was 22. I don't know how that happened, but it happened. And then they, that's why they sent me to the, um, the Commonwealth Games in Jamaica in 1966. So I'm, I'm 22 years of age. I'm in a totally foreign world, foreign country, covering the Commonwealth Games. Um, and it was terrible because you... Well, it was wonderful, but terrible. Um, you, you'd spend an hour grabbing a nap on a Pakistani wrestler's mat because being UPI, being a news agency, every country in the world wanted info about their athletes so you're working like 20 hours a day it was just crazy stuff um but then i went to new york and i in new york as a bureau as, as a journal and then a bureau chief of fairfax i think i visited 38 states in america over 10 years 11 years you know i mean when you think back now i remember standing in laurel maryland staring at George Wallace's wife who had blood all over her yellow dress after he was shot in an assassination attempt. He just jumped on... So you heard a story. He just jumped on a plane and Off went you there. You know? yeah. I, I, I chased Ronnie Biggs all over Brazil. I went to um, Brasilia. I went to Los... Uh, well, let's Rio. talk about all, all that. I mean, those 10 years were tumultuous years mm. in the United States. I mean, 1966, you mentioned the Commonwealth Games. Let's focus on that just briefly. What do you remember about those games? Any Australians that you remember winning gold? Because you were covering it for everybody, not just Australia. No, I was covering it for the world. Um, I, I do remember eating goat stew, which was pretty awful. That's what I remember. And getting diarrhoea from eating goat stew in, in, in Kingston, Jamaica. Um, I was... Uh, and this was when the Rastafarian gangs were, were a big deal there, the, the, the pot-smoking Rastafarians. And I was, one day I remember being in Jamaica during those games, I'm just thinking back to it now, and I saw a guy whose hand was bleeding because some gang member walked up behind him, 
he was American and slashed his jeans pocket from behind because Americans carried their wallets in their back pocket and just slashed him open and cut his hand as he grabbed for it. Um, And at the same time, the hotel where we stayed at was so bad, I actually walked into the kitchen because we had had jobs to do and cooked my own scrambled eggs because the the chef was so incompetent. And I said, hey, let me do it. And I walked to the kitchen. Christ, I think back now I'm 22. And I just said, hey, I'll do it. And I (laughs) cooked bacon and eggs in in the kitchen. Now, people don't realise also, because I've been to an Olympic Games and a couple of Commonwealth Games, and you don't always go to the events because you're stuck in the media area. Yeah covering what's happening. Did you go to any events in 1966 that you no, can remember? No. And let me tell you a funny story. just just crossed my mind. I was, You had to share rooms at the time, you know, and journos were all just G'd up with people. And I'm sharing a room with a guy called Ray Belisario. I haven't thought of his name in 40 years. And Ray Belisario, I thought, what are you doing here? He knew nothing about the games. He knew nothing about sport. He knew... And I thought, who are you? He was a photographer. And we were in this room together talking like something out of Monty Python. We had nothing in common. And I discovered he was the first paparazzi in the world. And he was there to get a picture of Princess Anne in a bikini. (laughs) She was a teenager. He'd flown all the way there to get a picture of Princess Anne in a bikini. Now, did he succeed, Derek? No, he didn't. But uh, he got a great picture. I think he got it because I, I mentioned this before, but we were in the – I did go to one event, that's true, the opening ceremony. And for the opening ceremony, all the official cars came down the marathon track into the arena. And as the Queen wasn't there, but the Duke of Edinburgh and Princess Anne were there, and as they swung down into the arena and did a hard right turn in their jeep, she fell ass over tit. <laughs> and the first thing we saw of the of the royal daughter was Princess Anne lying on the back of a jeep with a with a dress up around her waist and her legs in the air. <laughs> so he got a photograph of that, did he? I don't know. I, 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 he probably that's better did. than the bikini, to be honest. <laughs> it with would you. have been. Yeah, that's, that's true. So, yeah. So he was the first one, ironically. The second paparazzi in the world is a guy called Ron Galella in New York who became famous because um, Jackie Kennedy got a um, got an injunction against him from photographing her within 50 metres or 50 yards or something in Central Park. And she took him to court. And I was bureau chief for the Sydney Morning Herald at the time and I was petrified because what people didn't know was that I'd given Ron Galella a Sydney Morning Herald press pass to go places. I mean, it's a very official press pass, very pink and, and, and official. And I thought, I hope this doesn't come up in court, because if it does, Sir Warwick Fairfax will not understand how Darren Hinch, his name has become, and Fairfax having been involved in a, in a shit fight over, <laughs> over Jackie Kennedy, and, and, and it never did. The best thing about now, foreign correspondence, the best thing was, I mean, I said, one of the greatest jobs in the world because you just, you travel the world on somebody else's money. Uh, I recall when I got on a plane going to uh, Brazil to uh, chase Ronnie Biggs, and you're in first class. God knows what it costs. Who knows? And you're drinking. I remember they're drinking vodka and and uh, and eating um, um, beluga caviar 
And in, in, in first class on Varig, I think it was called, the airline, owned by the Brazilian government, they didn't give you like a little inch of caviar as Qantas would do with some egg and onion. They gave, they just ladled it out with a huge spoon. I mean, it was just, and you think, how long has this been going on? <laughs> and, and, and I recall once there's a guy called Ross Mark, who's an Australian, I think born in Dubbo. He was the uh, London Daily Express correspondent, White House correspondent. He was the dean of the press corps. He'd been there so many years. And, uh, and Ross, who's since passed, but uh, he and I were in Houston, Texas, covering one of the, the space shots. And we're having a, a lunch and a lovely, with a couple of young ladies. And uh, he looked at me and he said, you know, my editor doesn't understand how hard this job is. He said... I had the devil's own job finding a decent white wine in Houston. <laughs> but, to follow it up, but you did work hard. I mean, even though it was pre-social media, which is now, they work now 24-7. But back then, I worked two shifts. I worked for the City Morning Herald and The Sun. So twice a day, you had to front up and file a story. So during Apollo 13, you probably got a couple of hours sleep a night because you just had to get up every morning and I mean I was sitting there in, in mission control in Houston when they said Houston we got a problem which wasn't what they actually said that's in the movie Houston we got a problem but they actually said something like Houston we think we maybe have a problem here in a very bland way mm. not dramatically like they did in the movie no. Houston we have it was just very bland it was very that, bland that, saying that Houston we may have a problem here yeah. you know yeah. um, but Houston we've got a problem has become a line I use it on tweets all the time about everything else these days you know yeah. Um, what do you remember about going down to chase Ronald Biggs now how long were you in Brazil for oh because because he'd gone to Brazil yeah after he'd been here in Melbourne Australia he'd be, he'd be a he'd carpenter at Channel Nine where I was uh, in in Doncaster he was, in, a, he was a carpenter at Channel yeah. Nine mm. uh, did you come into contact with him did you speak uh, well to I, I interviewed we, we we had a press conference here yeah, we talked to him and uh, I interviewed Jaimunda de Castro uh, Nascimento she was his stripper girlfriend. Who then came out and worked in St Kilda, believe it or not, as a stripper. But um, Jaimunda Nascimento de Castro was his girlfriend. Um, I, there was a funny time because I was in our local pub, Costello's, in New York, where I heard that Biggs had been arrested. So I raced home, packed a bag. This is what you did in those days, a foreign correspondent. Just raced home, packed a bag, didn't even clear it with your editor, and just took off on a plane to Brazil. And I didn't have a, um, a a visa. And I was uh, with a guy called Ralph Champion, who was a very pompous British correspondent. Uh, 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 and uh, he, he drank teacher's, teacher's whiskey. I remember that. Um, but he was in front of me. And I suddenly realised I didn't have a visa. And if you are a pom, you didn't need a visa. So I just stood behind him and sounded very British... As I snuck on. In. <laughs> hey, oh, hello, yes, Ralph. Hello, Ralph. Hey, yes. Oh, good to see you, old chap. And I, and I, as I checked in, I didn't have to present my passport. And so they obviously assumed I was British because New Zealanders needed a passport as I had, I wasn't Australian then. Anyway, I get to Brazil. And I think I'm being very, very smart and I send my passport into the system. And I got uh, 
they picked me up. He went through and I got picked up as not having a visa and got locked up in a tin shed for about 15, 20 hours. Uh, um, the Australian government had to um, apply to get me out. Anyway, the next... So they kept my passport and let me into Brazil. So I got no identification, but I'm actually in, I'm in Brazil. And uh, we found Ronnie Biggs's apartment and, and we, got, we bribed the... Uh, the manager to let us in to his apartment and I found a tape of Ronnie Biggs had sent to Charmian, his wife, in which he explained to her how to how to go into his bank account in Russell Street in Melbourne. Now, where, how did you find that? Where did you find that? Uh, well, uh, okay. I, I, I'm finally, by dubious means, I'm suddenly in Brazil and I, as a journal, I call Reuters, Right, the the news agency, and being Australian and English, you suddenly say, "Hey, me, journalista, Australiano, Hinch," and the voice says, "I get fucked, Aaron." <laughs> and it was it was a journal I'd worked with in uh, in Sydney years before, and uh, he um, he said, "Look," he said, "Well, you're in Brazil." I said, "I'm in, I'm here. I'm here." I'm chasing Ronnie Biggs. And he said, look, I'm doing... The same day, there was a huge fire, I think, in Argentina. And about 100 people had died. And he said, I'm so busy on this other story, I can't do the big stuff. So can you cover it and, and feed me back when you get something? I said, sure. He said, here's his address. And so he gave... So I've been in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro for about 10 minutes. I suddenly have Ronnie Biggs' private address. Luck. So I, I go there with a the photographer called Mick Brennan, and we get there, and the manager of the the apartment building comes out, the custodian, and uh, and I gave him the address. He's oh yeah, we gave him twenty bucks. He said come on up, and so we walked to the apartment, and this is what journalists did in those days. And I found this tape, so I had to run around for about a day to get it played. I couldn't find a... So you just took the tape. Just took the tape, yeah. Stole it. Uh, and I didn't know what was on it. Had no idea, but I thought, this could be good. And I finally got a, a London Daily Mirror journal to um, find a, a tape recorder, because I didn't have one. And she, we played it together. And he's telling Charmian how to go to this bank deposit in uh, Russell Street and get money out, which he'd hidden there. And so we, we got the story. And ironically, this, this same, um, same, same photographer, he got international headlines because when finally Biggs was deported from uh, Rio, um, he flew back on the same flight to London. This, this is years later. Mm-hmm. You know, this is years later. Years later, yeah. I mean, yeah, 40 yeah, years later. Yeah, years deported. later when he's finally deported. Um, this same, same photographer got on the same flight and sat and sat and forced himself to stay awake until the coppers who's who is deporting um escorting bigs back to london waited till the coppers mate went to the dunny and there's an empty seat next to him and he said because they failed in the first bid and uh, and and the cop had to go home without without bigs in his company and he said here it is Going home without the without the the, the crim, 
and he got that photo, which yeah. went around, went on page one around the world. The uh, the other things that happened during your time as foreign correspondent in the United States were all the assassinations that mm. happened. I mean, nineteen sixty eight. Sixty eight was was just one hell of a year. Well, in, in two months, two months, I I covered the uh, assassination of Martin Luther King uh, in Memphis, and then went to his funeral in. Uh, Atlanta, Georgia, at the Ebenezer Baptist Church, and it was dreadful. And then, although uh, we had Aretha Franklin, she must, I thought that when she died recently, she must have been 25 or 26. She sang Amazing Grace at Martin Luther King's funeral. It was just awesome, just awesome. And then two months later, we were all in LA for Bobby Kennedy's assassination. Now, am I right, Darren? You were at the hotel. Yeah, the, the ambassador, ambassador, the ambassador hotel, hotel yeah. in Los Angeles, the Pink Palace, they used to call in it. In the ballroom. Yeah. Now people can go on YouTube and uh, see Bobby Kennedy say, "Well, we've won here in California. Now on to on to Chicago, on to and, Chicago. and Mayor, and now here we are on to Chicago and Mayor Daly is what he said. Yeah. yeah. And then he walks off and he goes through the kitchen. The kitchen. Well, we didn't because we couldn't get there. I mean, he he went off through the kitchen, and we we're still in the ballroom. He went to the kitchen, and that's when Sirhan Sirhan shot him. Did you hear the shot? Did you? No, we were too far. It was too noisy and too far away. What were you aware of and when? When suddenly the word went through the ballroom, Kennedy's been shot. Kennedy's been shot. And we just, we we didn't believe it. I mean, you thought, this is only only five years later since John Kennedy was assassinated. He thought, it can't be true. And he actually, it was June 5 or 6, and he died. Yeah, because Martin Luther King was April 5 or 6. And Bobby Kennedy was shot on five or six of May, uh, June, June, but he he, he died a, a day later. So by that stage, we'd all gone back to New York and organising to go to his his funeral at St Patrick's Cathedral. And, and the most amazing speech by Teddy Kennedy, you know, in which he he quoted Achilles, I think that's how you pronounce it, and he said, uh, you know. You know, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And and then they, uh, I didn't go on the train. They then put his body on a train to Washington, and the train hit a a supporter and killed him on, on the way. You know, but I remember, I remember walking out of the St Patrick's Cathedral. It was a Saturday morning. I remember walking out of the cathedral, and a hooker said, "Do you want to go out?" <laughs> I thought. This is New York. This is bizarre. I've just been at the funeral of one of the most loved and respected men in the world, and here's some hooker working the streets of, of Fifth Avenue. Yeah. Have you ever been to Bobby Kennedy's grave in Arlington? No, I have National not. No. I've actually never <laughs> been to Arlington. No, no. Uh, no and I, I regret that. Um, I also regret that there's a, there was a thing called the Museum in Washington, which was a museum of journalism, and it's called the Museum. Uh, my brother sent me a Desmond sent me a book about it. He went there, and it was just amazing. But it's closed. It's, it went broke and closed down about six months ago, which I regret. Um, I have been to the Lincoln, the Lincoln Memorial. I've been to the Washington Monument. Uh, I did a story for Sunday night outside the Dakota Apartments where John Lennon was murdered. You know, um, I've been to the Alamo. There's not many places I haven't 
I haven't been to, especially in America. And as I said earlier, I've covered like 38, 40 states around the place. Never been to Alaska, which I'd like to. Been to Texas many times. Oh. Um, but as I was saying before, being a forest correspondent, you, you, you're literally sitting on an aisle seat to history, and you're so lucky. I mean, I covered Watergate. You know, I covered assassinations. You know, um, and and a year later, Darren, hmm? Chappaquiddick happened. Yeah. The brother, Edward Kennedy, Edward who made Kennedy. that magnificent speech the year earlier. Yeah. He's involved in the death of a woman. He's apparently driving the car. Mary Jo Capek. Yeah. Now, now, tell us the story of uh, that. Because well, he just, didn't I, report himself for many hours no, after it, that. It, it, okay. It was a terrible, it, it was a disgrace. That's why I never respected Teddy Kennedy ever again. I, um, it was only a few days after men had landed on the moon. In uh, It was in... Um, July 1969, just only a week after they'd landed on the moon. And uh, I, I got a call from Peter Koskin, who's a journo for the Melbourne Herald, and he went on to become Lord Mayor of Melbourne. And he said, Kennedy's been involved in something. There's a dead woman in Chappaquiddick. I didn't know where Chappaquiddick was. Anyway, we jumped in the car, the two of us. As I said, you do, you, just, you don't even call your editor. You just jump in the car, and we drove the three hours from Mel from. Uh, New York to Chappaquiddick and uh, you found out more and more about what an asshole he really was I mean I covered I covered the the coronial inquest in in, in Pennsylvania uh, I interviewed Mary Jo's parents uh, in, in in Philadelphia in Wilkes-Barre Pennsylvania and I sat with the mother ironically when she answered the door she offered me an apple and I took it because the journal, I thought, as long as I'm eating an apple, she won't throw me out. <laughs> just crossed my mind. I thought, she said, do you like an apple? I said, I'd love one. Uh, and I just, so I could see, I ate the slowest apple in my life because I could keep talking to, to Mary Jo's mum and dad. Now, now just uh, explain the story because we assume everyone knows the story, but no one's, okay. Well, what happened few was people it, are as old as we are. Okay, okay. let me tell you. Um, Wilkes-Barre, uh, what happened? Um, it was very badly worded because Newsweek magazine said that the Boiler Room Girls, they were a bunch of Robert Kennedy supporters. And when he died, they were bereft. They worked for the Kennedy uh, campaign. The Boiler they called the Boiler Room Girls because they worked behind the scenes and worked very hard. There was a, a yacht race going on in Newport in, in Rhode Island. And Teddy Kennedy was, had a boat, a yacht in that race. So the girls all went, the boiler room girls all went there to support Teddy Kennedy in the yacht race. They had a party at a little, on an island called, you know, called Chappaquiddick. Teddy Kennedy went to that party. He'd been drinking all day. At the party, he was drinking more. He then... Mary Jo Kopechny in a car and was driving her down to a beach at Chappaquiddick and they came across a wooden bridge which Peter Koskin and I later drove over and he literally drove off it was such a low dangerous bridge anybody sober could have crashed their car on it Kennedy pissed drove off the bridge his Cadillac overturned he jumped out and swam away 
at the inquest, evidence came out that she was still alive when he swam when he went when he left her. That she could have been saved, and she drowned. In the, there's an air pocket in the upside down car, and she could have lived. He then didn't try and go back in and save her. He then walked all the way back to the party house. He um, walked past several houses which had their lights on where he could have sought um, help. He called one of his gophers to come outside and said, we've got a problem, and got the gopher to drive him back to the, the wharf, back to Edgartown, um, where the last ferry had already gone. So he then, even though he supposedly got a bad back, he swam across back to the town of Edgartown, went upstairs, changed into dry clothes, went downstairs and, and knocked on the manager's door to say, what time is it, and prove he had an alibi that he was back in town, it wasn't him. Did not report the accident, did not report the death until the coppers alerted him when they found the car upside down about 10 hours later. And then he turned up when he was at, at, at court, he turned up wearing a neck brace to make himself look pathetic and, 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 and a victim. The local coppers, seeing as a Kennedy, he was driving on a disqualified licence. They rewrote the licence to clean him up. Uh, his, his mates at, the, at the, the, the party house emptied all the booze bottles out and just left a couple of Coke bottles there to cover their ass. Nobody knew, the police department didn't know that Kennedy was on the island or off the island. It was a, a dreadful cover-up of a 29-year-old girl's death. I mean, he didn't kill her but he could have saved her. And so forever after, I thought, you bastard. And, and, and I, I covered that case from, from morning till night. Well, American people thought the same as you because he, he, he could have been President of the United States yeah. and never was. He tried a number of times, but I think... Well, ironically, was... when George McGovern... I covered this campaign and George McGovern ran for President in 1972... He, I was at the convention. He begged Teddy Kennedy to, to be his running mate. And at the last minute, Kennedy refused. And uh, he just kept refusing. He didn't want to be number two. And McGovern chose a guy called Thomas Eagleton, who then announced, this is back in 72, and I'm glad to see the, the New South Wales national leader has now come out and said, I've had some mental problems and I'm getting some help. But back in 1972... Uh, when Eagleton was revealed by Jack Anderson in a column had had mental problems and been to a psychiatrist three times. After 18 days, McGovern sacked him as vice presidential candidate because you can't have a nutcase with his finger near the button on the uh, on the nucleus, whatever. So things have changed in, in 50 years. But uh, when that came out this week about, um, about uh, Sydney, I thought... We have we have gone come a long way, you know. That people will admit if they've got mental problems and they will concede it. So that's it's a start. 
let's talk about probably the biggest political story in the history of the United States, uh, well, uh, mm. ever, but certainly in the 20th century, and that was Watergate. Mm. Um, you covered that as a foreign correspondent. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, 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 covered, I covered it. Ironically, I covered it on Brian White's 2GB program day after day after day, and people said, why are you so concerned? I said, it's a huge story. It's a huge story. And I went to Washington, I covered Watergate. I mean, when, when Nixon said, I am not a crook, he got up and stopped and said, I am not a crook. I mean, the man was a liar and a crook. Ironically, as in business often, the crime is not what you do, it's often the cover-up. I used to say to my, to, to, um, to my secretary, you know, uh, I call this a human sandbag. I'd say, if you make a mistake, tell me and we'll cover it together. We'll fix it together. It's the cover-up and you spend more time trying to cover up. I mean, Nixon spent more time trying to cover up Watergate than the actual thing. I mean, six guys broke into the Watergate Hotel, into the Democrats' offices there and stole some papers. But they, the cover-up went on and on and on. And in the end, Nixon resigned. I mean, I remember I was in Washington the day that people were saying, if you think Nixon's guilty, toot your horn. And there were hundreds of cars driving around the White Horse tooting their horns. So he had to go. He, he had to resign. And he was, uh, it, it was an amazing time because, I mean, Spiro Agnew, his vice president, it had resigned. Who was crooked as well. He, he'd taken money. He'd taken money across the desk in paper bags. So he was crooked. And then Nixon was crooked. Um, but when Dan Rather stood up and said, are you a crook? It was very brave for a journalist to say to the President of the United States. And Nixon said, I am not a crook, when he was. And uh, you know, the, the line by one of these senators saying, and it stuck in my mind forever, what did the president know and when did he know it? And it was repeated again and again. What did the president know and when did he know it? Because he, they, they obliterated 18 and a half minutes of, of, of what it, the, the Watergate tapes? Well, that's the other thing, the tapes that existed, because mm. he set up this recording system in his yeah. office, the Oval Office, uh, and there was all this proof of things he said that you know came out of his mouth. It was there. It was all there. And they were being played at the inquiry yeah. that it was being. Yeah, John Dean finally suddenly said, well, I remember close, I remember being there, and John Dean suddenly almost dismissively said, oh, well, the tapes show that. And the senator said, what tapes? He said, well, the White House tapes, because Nixon taped everything. And you heard a pin drop. You know, people said, it's all on tape. And then they found, they got the tapes, except that Nixon, before he handed the tapes over, um, deleted 18 and a half minutes. His secretary, she said she erroneously or inadvertently trod on the button Yes, but then they did a reenactment, and the, she said she went to answer the phone, mm. and while she answered the phone, she must have put her foot put her foot on the button or taken. And it couldn't it off, be done. It, it couldn't happen that way. And, and you couldn't do it because no. the phone was too far away. Yeah, the phone was over there, and her foot was over here. It was it was, was pathetic. You now know. you've been into the Oval Office, am I oh, right? Yeah. What, what do you remember? Oh, and what magic. was the circumstances? Magic. Uh, I think I was there. I was there with President with. with Prime Minister McMahon, I was there with Prime Minister Whitlam. Um, it is awesome. It's much smaller than you think, but there's a glorious... I'll show you something. I'm going to walk away from my microphone here. I'll show you something. 
He's going to his bookshelf, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, what's that, a plate? A pewter plate of some sort, is it? Uh, is that crockery or metal? Pewter. Have a look at that. The Great Seal of the United States of America. Now, that is quite something. Isn't it? And, and, and look that at that. That was given to you, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and on that, that there in the middle, this is bad for, for, for a podcast, that is the, the seal in carpet in the Oval Office. So you're standing alongside that, that seal of, 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 of the air. So the, they uh, gave you that as yeah. a result of having gone to the yeah. Oval Office, didn't yeah. they? Yeah, um, it, 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 is, it, it is magic. And... Uh, I've actually promised it to one of my staff when I cark it. I said, yeah, you can have it. But it's uh, to stand there in the Oval Office, and I said, it's much smaller than you think. But to think, presidents have been here for years and decades and decades, and it, it really is an, an awesome moment, a hushed moment to walk in there. Darren, the other thing that you would have covered as foreign correspondent was the Vietnam War mm. and all of the protests that happened as a result of what gathered from the late 60s all the way through to the early On, on one occasion during the Vietnam War, um, I was in Washington and I was inside the Pentagon and I got injured during the Pentagon protests because a quarter of a million people marched on the Pentagon. 250,000 people marched on the Pentagon and I was inside and somebody smashed a window and the glass cut my hand uh, so I could say yeah I got injured during all that um, the those I mean remember at Kent State people died and it was the biggest uh, recent things about Black Lives Matter this is the biggest series of protests since the late 1960s 70s um, what's happening now but um, I mean the Vietnam War tore America apart it really did I mean we forget it was John Kennedy who sent Americans there in the first place. He sent, I think he sent 600 advisors and then Lyndon Johnson increased and increased and increased and then Lyndon Johnson resigned because of the Vietnam War um, and that led to Richard Nixon's election because he said, I have a plan to end the Vietnam War, which he didn't, but he said it. And then Henry Kissinger who bombed the shit out of Cambodia with Nixon's approval, he wins the Nobel Peace Prize. Go figure. <laughs> well, it's often said television ended the Vietnam War. I agree. Americans could see the they body. Saw the, they saw the body bags. The bodies coming back. They saw the body bags. And also, in my belief, what ended the Vietnam War was that naked girl running down the street with her brother having been napalmed. I'm burned on her back, and 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 then the South Vietnamese police chief shooting the Viet Cong. So there were three images that really suddenly America thought, we don't need this, get out of here. And yeah, yeah I'd agree with you. Television, in my view, ended the Vietnam War because it was so pow it was so powerful, and people sitting having their dinner every night, seeing fifty five thousand body bags coming home of young Americans. We don't need this. We don't want this. We're out of here. Mr. Hinch, why did you uh, leave New York? You seemed like you were having so much fun as a foreign correspondent. It, it was a was it, was it a, your decision to leave? Yeah, it was a massive decision to leave. It was a massive decision. And let's wrap it up on this. 
I was talking to, I was invited to come home to, to Australia as deputy editor of the Sydney Sun newspaper. And I was loving New York. I loved covering North and South America and Canada. Um, I was talking to my LA correspondent. His name was Ivor Davis, who worked for the London Daily Express. And I was telling him, I said, I've got a quandary here because they want me to come home as deputy editor of the newspaper. And he said, try the shaving mirror test. And I said, what? He said, try the shaving mirror test. He said, because... If you don't take it, look at the shaving mirror every morning and you'll think, I wonder if I could have done it. I wonder if I could have done it. And that convinced me to give up New York and come back to Australia. I made a proviso. I said to the mahogany row, as I used to call them, I said, I'll come back as deputy editor, but I'm not editor within six months, so I'll quit. And I was edited within six weeks. And that was the next part of the story. Mr. Hinch, <laughs> thank you very much for your time. Again. Thanks, mate.